Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan talk about Rave's journey to the dark side in 1992 and 1993. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll? That's right. I'm joined once again by my co-host Ryan Hartness as we continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. I'm Nate Wilcox, by the way. I forgot to introduce myself, Ryan. Is that because I've fallen over into the dark side? Maybe, maybe too many drugs, too much dark uh, techno music. It must be. Yeah, that's that. That could be, and that means that we're in the chapter called "The UK Rave Dream Turns to Nightmare." Actually, it's called "Slipping into Darkness." The UK Rave Dream Turns to Nightmare, 1992 to 1993, and it's interesting. It's a fascinating chapter, but. Did Reynolds kind of retro name this whole genre himself? Um, I kind of did a little bit of research into it. It's interesting because uh, when when you kind of go into a bunch of the artists that he names and you look up their Wikipedia pages and stuff like that, when, when they're referred to as dark side, it does point back at the book. So it's kind of an interesting thing where maybe – Maybe this was something that Simon Reynolds kind of coined and then and then kind of inserted. Uh, I'm I'm obviously just a little bit too young to 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 remember 92, 93 as a scene. I only started paying attention to everything around 1996. Um, Dark side as a subgenre. Uh, I mean, it, it's certain it's certainly is descriptive of of what was going on at the time, and because I think you can't really. 100% call it jungle because it was still kind of proto jungle at the time. Dark side is as good of a descriptor as any. I think it's I think it's pretty useful. So in that term, if, if it is something that he added to the lexicon, I think it's a, a, a good addition. Yeah, I think so, too. I definitely think I mean, musically, you can put together a playlist of 70, 80, 100 songs that hold together pretty well and fit the terms that he has ascribed to this genre. And it definitely does seem to be a period where hardcore is evolving and it hasn't quite become jungle yet um but it's definitely a moment and and reynolds has some big sociological angles on this whole scene yeah there's there's, there's, a, there's an overarching narrative to this whole chapter that i think tries to paint with a bit too wide of a brush but i think that there's two things that are, that are really important things that he covers in this chapter and that's the off your tits drug culture that absolutely did exist still exist and will always exist in the rave scene and then there's the subgenre shift away from that happy cheesy breakbeat hardcore into proto drum and bass and that laid the foundations for the jungle scene so those those are kind of the two uh the two really firm things to grasp on in this chapter and then then over that he lays a uh a, a a very descriptive and very convincing narrative that I still think is is you know only only true for certain segments of the scene. It isn't it isn't an overarching thing that you can say was was the entire scene at the time ninety two ninety three. Yeah, I think I think it, what he's describing is that you know 
dark side, quote, seemed to reflect a sort of collective come down after the E high of 91 and 92. The scene had turned squalid. Alienated ravers deserted in droves for, for the milder climbs of Happy House and Mellow Garage, but a substantial segment of the audience followed Hardcore's drug tech logic into the Twilight Zone. Ravers who had come to enjoy bad trips and weird vibes, who found it preferable to stick to Rave's, quote, living dream, even when it became a living nightmare. By late 1992, Hardcore Rave resembled a machine gone mad. So maybe that's what Simon was going for through and a lot of people were going through this apparently and it is something that happens with every drug scene i mean anybody who overdoes it on any of these serotonin and dopamine depleting chemicals is going to end up serotonin and dopamine deprived and that's and that's a bad thing but the thing you know and he compares it to multiple other scenes that we've talked about on let it roll in different times the 1967 San Francisco Summer of Love quickly curdled into an extremely bad scene featuring lots of violence, bikers, plus plenty of heroin, methamphetamine, and STP, which is this nightmarish 36-hour hallucinogen that um, you know people like Brian Jones and Jim Morrison got into there in, in the dark days, and and you know he he talks about how. Uh, the same thing happened again in ecstasy subcultures, whether it's Manchester in 1990 or L.A. 1993, that this descent into darkness is inevitable. But what he feels was unique about this period was the shift was reflected in the music, that the tunes were, quote, haunted by a collective apprehension that we've gone too far. Are we going too far, Ryan? Uh, you know, I think Reynolds is right when he narratively outlines like 1992 to 1993 is a similar thing to what happened in the Hyde Ashbury scene where the real dark side to drug culture really becomes unignorable. Uh, but let's not pretend that there wasn't plenty of new ravers with fresh serotonin stepping in, having great times, listening to a bunch of really uplifting euphoric music as well. That was still the vast majority of what was being made and, and listened to. And, and there was a boom that was just as massive as anything that came before or after at the time as well. So, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to criticize Simon Reynolds for uh, for any of this, because when you look when you read carefully, you do note that he specifically says again and again, this is a sub subsect of these people are going off and doing this thing and getting to the dark side. And the dark side music was coming through all of it. But I mean, you kind of have to recognize the fact that dark dance music with overt drug drug messages uh, and trippy effects. It's nothing new to this era. You could argue that the big difference between house and techno was techno's lean into the dark metallic, metallic impersonal soundscapes and early Detroit, Detroit techno and Belgian beat was full of over drug use and freak out references. So it's nothing, nothing unique um, other than the fact, you know, that, that what was going on in breakbeat hardcore kind of went from that toy town sound into, uh, what becomes drum and bass. And, the, and again, that that's where it's like, you can kind of talk about something that needs to be talked about in the rave scene, which is the crazy drug scene and the people going way too far and the birth of jungle. And, uh, it's kind of funny how they get so, so intertwined considering some of the, the pioneers of that jungle sound had nothing to do with any of the drug use. But uh, there we are. Indeed. And the thing I think that separates this from the earlier sort of Belgian and, and Joey Beltram kind of hardcore sounds we heard just a few episodes ago, that stuff was angry and violent and, you know, punk rock influenced 
powerful music. This stuff tends to be a little creepier and more sinister, and they're kind of reveling in that. And and it it is, yeah, important to emphasize that happy hardcore and early garage were going on at the same time. And we'll get to those in like four chapters. I think Simon's going to talk about the next wave of Detroit, and then he's going to talk about pirate radio, and then he's going to talk about jungle, and then he's going to get to happy hardcore, but we will get to happy hardcore. That's the thing. This stuff is happening so fast. And that's what I'm really enjoying is that sitting down and listening to this stuff in sort of a roughly chronological order, you get a feel for how fast the innovations were coming. And and we're at a point where the innovations are heavily coming out of England. We've got a little bit of Chicago in this episode, but England is really becoming this innovative capital of dance music. And and this, I think, it's easy to write off Dark Side as it wasn't that popular, but it's also the father of both jungle and drum and bass, which become enormously popular dominant styles later on in the decade. So I I don't know. I think I think he is. I'm thankful that he identified this because it does seem to be a case that you can make. I mean, there's there's this, all these songs like songs ref, or tracks referencing brain damage. Like you've got Busy Bees, Total Amnesia, Four Heroes, Mind Loss, a State of Amnesia. You've got Two Bad Mice with Mass Confusion, Satin Storm. I think I'm going out of my head. Um, and you've got these sort of panic attack songs again we've talked about this before with, with hardcore but let's go ahead and hear scotty from Subnation. we're not gonna die we're all gonna die we're not gonna die we're gonna get out of here <laughs> we're not gonna die i don't want to die you're not gonna leave me are you i don't want to die And that was Subnation Scotty, which Reynolds calls a part of an entire mini genre of panic attack songs featuring people's names. There was Ricky by Remark, there was Scotty, there was uh, Jungle by Johnny Jungle, uh, Johnny by Johnny Jungle. So um, a lot of creepy samples and panicked and calling people's names. It must have been pretty heavy in some of those clubs. And I could see why a lot of the punters would have fled for the exits rather than subject themselves to this. But if you're into that kind of thing, uh, I could see it being, you know, very good sort of Halloween fun, especially if you've just given up on getting a good high. <laughs> you're just happy to get the adulterated garbage in your system, just looking to get off rather than to get high. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we wouldn't be the first group that, uh, you know, gets into like the heavier, harder, darker stuff. For some reason, I, I, and, and I really thought about this. I tried to come to some kind of uh, perspective or conclusion as to like what it is about, about music in general, where you get people that get into really like kind of dark, like metal people listening to like the real really satanic stuff or, you know, like you could pick any genre and there's, there's a whole kind of side carnival of, of really dark delights that you can kind of get into. And for the most Hip-hop part, it's was doing that at this point, like the ghetto boys are doing um, their horror core stuff around this time. And and I think the one of the um, Wu-Tang Clan spinoff groups is, is doing horror core and three, six mafia is about to come along. So there was something in the air in the early nineties that, encourage the sort of Halloweeny and black metal in Norway was was really off the chain in this period. So maybe it was just a dark time. We'll have to ask an astrologer. 
to a certain degree, I think maybe there's also like a, a big wink, wink, nudge, nudge element to a lot of it, especially a bunch of the drug stuff, you know, uh, uh, the sensationalism and, and kind of the, uh, the the element of everybody being a criminal in, in this whole situation and, and, and the way the media kind of overplayed the danger maybe is is how people could have been looking at it at the time because they, they didn't really come through they hadn't really hit the skid point yet so it's all just good fun to laugh at at this point so uh but yeah it, it, it's it was all over the place and it was it's definitely an interesting phenomenon worth talking about but i i do have a a kind of view in my head that maybe it sociologically it's maybe not as key as we might try to make it out to be it's kind of like you wouldn't you don't see all these papers on uh, on all the really sexually explicit like uh, booty music or or two live crew type stuff and, and try to tie that into the overly sexual nature of the rave scene. It's just the drug stuff and the horror stuff that we try to write write a paper on on how this is a reflection of the darkness of the raver's mind, you know. It's true, but I'll have to make a note to be on the lookout for somebody writing about that sex stuff because it might be a popular episode. But yeah, it's. I don't know. It was a crazy period, but I remember living through this period. I wasn't paying much attention to dance music at this point, um, but definitely metal and, and hip hop were off the chain. And the drug scene was off the chain. And a big part of it was that you couldn't get good X, or at least there were rumors you couldn't get good X. A lot of people were adulterating with LSD or a cocktail of LSD and methamphetamine. We've talked about this before. But also one of the responses to kids thinking that you can't good get, get good X anymore was, well, I'll just take more of whatever it is I can get. So... <laughs> You know, that's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, if you want a bad trip. But there's also a big sort of fascination with personalizing the drug. And frequently the voice, the character singing or being the voice in these tracks is frequently speaking on behalf of ecstasy personified as as the, sort of the siren song calling people in and – a lot of tracks like DJ Crystal's Warp Drive, Four Heroes, The Power, DJ Hype's Weird Energy that focus on this sort of secret dark power that people are getting from their drug abuse. So, you know, it, it, it's it's something was going on here. And he's he identifies a number of the technical factors that, that identify dark side. He's stark and severe drum and bass minimalism. A lot of these tracks have just the big boom and sub bass sound. They also do time stretching and pitch shifting and reversing break beats. So they've continued this thing from hip house of putting break beats into dance music, which never caught on in the States very much, although it started in the States, but the tension between the hip hop and the house communities was too much for that to really become a popular style. But in Britain, those breakbeats became a big thing. And this is where they really start jacking with the breakbeats themselves. And the pitch shifting technology is cheap and all over the place all of a sudden. So people like Goldie and his refugee crew period um, are just jacking with the sound of these breakbeats. Speeding them up is the most noticeable thing. And when you get those syncopated breakbeats, but they're so sped up, you could a human being could never play them that way. And you can't really dance exactly to that beat, but you find other rhythms that you can dance to. And it gives it a quote, as Reynolds says, a brittle metallic sound like scuttling claws. And then um, and layered beats form a dense mesh of convoluted convulsive polyrhythm 
inducing a febrile feel of in-the-pocket funk and out-of-body delirium. And later he calls this a febrile style, but it's a cold fever. So lots of cold and evil darkness. You've still got um, – or they got rid of the anthemic cor- choruses and sentimental melodies of hardcore. They definitely got away from the Toy Town techno vocal samples. They do all kinds of stuff to the vocal samples. They do use, they are speeding them up, but they're also slowing them down. They're reversing. Um, they're putting things in to make them sound ghostly. Uh, a hair-raising atmosphere of apprehension and persecution. Uh, sustained drones and background hums to introduce to induce tension. And then they're playing with things that, quote, take the listener to the heart of the schizophrenic experience by simulating auditory hallucinations Wow. I mean, that that is heavy when you're simulating one of the most profound sorts of psychosis, like and you doing that with an audience that's consuming mass amounts of shady, dodgy drugs. I mean, it, it is a chaotic chemistry that they're mixing up here. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the big goals of uh, when when you're writing kind of this dance music for a dance crowd is to, or if you're picking a track, is to is to try and tap into to kind of where they're at and where you want to take them, and and simulating those those trips or taking taking a sound that you know when you're high sounds a certain way. I mean, it's a uh, it's 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 like peanut butter and chocolate. It just goes right together, and uh, you know it's the easiest way to 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 reach out and interface with the crowd is to jack into their jack into the high that they're on and ride that and and bring them along with you from there so i think a big part of of what was going on was was a backlash to all the happy stuff at a certain point producers want to start making some more serious sounding music especially in the face of this toy town criticism and going dark instead of light was just like kind of an obvious route to take and uh, as far as, uh, you know, the breakbeats getting bigger and bigger, we kind of talked about Shut Up and Dance before being uh, a really big part in how their breakbeat hip hop sound sped up, ended up kind of being the beginning of, of hardcore rave. And then a lot of UK hip hop, uh, hip hop would kind of ended up being more like hip house. It was, they were, they were rapping at higher speeds that ended up coming up to what the techno DJs and house DJs in the clubs were playing at the time. So all of a sudden you had guys like Fabio and Groove Rider at, at Rage in Heaven, which was a, you know, a really important laboratory for the sound. They were finally starting to get records that would mix in with their house and their techno that had breakbeats. And then once they started getting Tech 12s in the club, they were also pitching those up, and that kind of sped things up as well. Technology-wise, you had samplers that had very specific limits. You wanted to sample a breakbeat, you were going to have to speed the breakbeat up and sample it at a faster speed and then slow it down. And it's only natural once you've sped that breakbeat up to get it into the sampler that you realize, hey, this is pretty cool. Maybe we should just do something with this. So there was a whole bunch of things kind of going on at the same time. That, that ended up creating this sound. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm not sure it gets talked about in, in this chapter a lot, but we'll talk about it maybe when we start talking about 4Hero, but uh, Rage being a laboratory for, for where drum and bass and this dark side sound, you can follow the progression with Fabio and Groove Rider from the earlier sets in the early 90s up until 93, 94, where it goes from pretty much a straight house break house sound into this dark side drum and bass sound and it's really cool to watch the evolution 
Absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Nasty Habits. Here come the drums. This is a track that Reynolds says is the definitive Dark Side track from Nasty Habits with Here Come the Drums from 1992, which Reynolds thinks is the definitive uh, Dark Side track. And I'm really glad you brought up Fabio and Groove Rider and introduced me to those sets that they have played because, you know, Brewster and Broughton really hipped us to the fact that dance music and the electronic dance music era is driven by DJs. And it seems pretty clear that Fabio and Groove Rider as DJs were introducing breakbeats on their own and adding them to tracks well before a lot of these producers were doing the same thing. And and I think if Reynolds has a blind spot, that that's it. It, it, I appreciate very much his focus on producers and records because it it really guides you to a lot of listening you can do and you can make great playlists, but also you can make, you can get really good playlists from going to Mixcloud in different places and listening to these DJ sets. Unfortunately, we're in an era when many DJ sets were recorded for our historical enjoyment. And yeah, Fabian and Groove Rider are unquestionably key drivers of this scene, but because they're not record producers, they get blanked in this chapter. So that's kind of a blind spot by Reynolds I'm kind of surprised by. Well, he mentions at the beginning of the book how he uh, how he at first he got it wrong because he was kind of listening to it as an armchair critic and he was uh, mostly interfacing with artists uh, through through albums, which obviously when you're talking about rave DJs or rave producers, their 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 artist albums are very different from the output there the, when they're when they're putting out dub plates and singles and everything else like that for the club. So I think that you know he he realized that he was doing that wrong and the real way to go and experience this is to go out and, and hear the sets in, in the club but then he didn't take that natural progression and, and kind of put the DJ in the center of his book which I think I can understand as well because based on a lot of the other uh, you know literature of the time I think maybe that was that was being overdone a bit so he was looking to take it from a different perspective so you know it's kind of like when we were criticizing Brewster and Broughton for 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 limiting their scope Simon Reynolds is limiting his scope in his own way and it, it just it ends up telling us a different viewpoint of of from of the scene and and you know I can't criticize his viewpoint because I, I like it a lot so yeah it's it's full of useful stuff but that is something that I think we're, I'm trying to keep an eye on and trying to with every chapter asking myself who were the key DJs what were the key clubs can I hear what these mixes sound like because all through this period, I mean, starting with Frankie Knuckles, any as soon as we've got recordings of DJs, it sounds so different when a DJ is mixing these tracks and cutting them together and playing with it. It's a whole nother creative level that uh, I don't think you can simulate. It's very hard. I mean, you, you know, you can't simulate the club sound system in your home. I'm certainly not going to be trying these varieties of drug cocktails at my age. So, you know, you can only get a, a simulacrum of, of what the experience was like for the people participating in the scene. But nonetheless, uh, I'm glad you brought up um, Fabio and Groove Rider because those DJs were absolutely key to this. And and then, you know, Reynolds gets more on the on the drug stuff. He, he says that this was 
a pivotal and revelatory moment for him that the he realized that the life-affirming celebratory aspects of rave were turned inside out the smiley face ripped off to reveal the true nihilism of any drug-based culture simon i didn't know you're such a puritan i mean i think he's probably right but is he? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's at a certain point you realize that the uh, that the plur the plur is is kind of like one one level deep, and there are levels to this thing. There's like a deeper level to it that gets dark, and you know, underneath that dark level, there's another level that that I think is kind of hard to describe as to what it is. There's a, I really enjoy the little philosophical throwaway paragraph that he put in there about uh, these philosophers Deleuze and Guattari uh, about how the rave is the uh, expression of what Deleuze and Guattari called the body without organs. In this case, that would be a collection of individuals coming together outside of the usual hierarchical organizations that make up normal society. And psychoanalysis usually attempts to determine how existing these existing structures may be causing repression in a, in a person, causing dysfunction. But Deleuze and Guattari suggests that is it's stepping outside these bounds into that body without organs that we can recalibrate and redefine pleasure into meaning. So that was kind of I feel like we talked about that in the Spiral Tribe, and that's what the Spiral Tribe people were trying to do. It was a coming together of people into a group that was not a group in a certain way, uh, a group outside of society. But in the context of this chapter on rave darkness, Reynolds talks about the dangers that those two philosophers note regarding the body without organs in a by rejecting all established hierarchies violently, one can just end up either going fascist because you're so stratified, stratified against the norms or just with drug use sliding into suicidal emptiness because nothing matters. So, you know, we, we talked about this last week with the Spiral Tribe. Taking the load tr less traveled is one thing, but wandering off into the wilderness can be fatal. And I don't think many people can exist inside that hedonistic drug use state for too long. Although the drug experiences themselves may be illuminating and could force you to see things about yourself that, uh, you know, would be therapeutic in a way. Yeah, there's always room, I think, on the hero's journey for, you know, a walk through the chamber of horrors. You just don't want to get stuck there permanently. And unless, the, unless the music is really good. Well, of course. Of <laughs> Stay course. in the chamber of horrors for a couple hours. <laughs> I certainly have enjoyed the dark side mixes, I have to say. I, I, I enjoyed this um, probably as much as I did the hardcore listening a few chapters ago but he's got one, 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 one last aside is uh, i feel like there's we also have to mention of course the people who don't go completely over the top and off the rails and just have a generally good time across the board doing a reasonable amount of drugs which i think is a, a very underrepresented experience in the rave scene i think that might be like the majority rave experiences most people just go in do it have fun get out and don't ruin their lives and don't destroy their brains uh, or or any worse than they would you know uh, going on a binge drinking or whatever else like that and they heard a lot of good music doing it yeah there's always that big bubble in the bell curve of people who who went through the experience just fine and escaped unscathed at the end but didn't have any big transcendental insights either but you know yeah. it is what it is but you know rel's got some of these great quotes i just gotta throw out quote in the beginning ecstasy makes you feel angelic Ultimately, it can turn you into a demon, <laughs> and, you know, and, and getting high degenerates into just getting out of it. And, and he felt like 
that you know Hyperon experiences song Lord of the Null Lines from 1993 quote captured that moment of disenchantment which Reynolds describes a few scenes of encounters with clubbers that made him feel like the scene had turned squalid on him and from his descriptions it's not anything you probably could see at any club any night some chick throwing up some dude overreacting with gratitude when you give him a cigarette some sweaty creepy dude overreacting with gratitude but and that's one of the things he talks about is that in these, when you're simulating these sort of schizophrenic experiences, seemingly trivial moments can take on these the significance. And that's one of the signs of psychosis is when people start attributing all this meaning to totally random events. But at the same time, mysticism has a lot of similarities with it. So it's very hard to tell a prophet from a lunatic, especially in a crowded dance club at three in the morning. But let's hear a little break from our sponsors uh, <laughs> before we get back to talking about drugs and the dark side. Like I mentioned before, there was a wide, widely held belief that you couldn't get quality ecstasy in England in this period. And, and it resulted in things like um, not, not only MDMA, which is the chemical... Uh, ecstasy is made of, being cut with LSD or meth or tranquilizers or baking soda and other inert substances. But also people started selling MDA and, and things they called snowballs or white caps. And MDA was around before MDMA. This is a drug that was never really popular in the 60s, but around the same time people were experimenting with things like STP, they were also experimenting with MDA. You know, and it, it's a longer trip than LSD. I think it's a more sexual trip, but it doesn't have that love feeling. It doesn't trigger the serotonin like MDMA does. So it, it's again adds to the bad vibes. Yeah, having scene. done it once, it's uh, it's definitely much closer to acid than it would be to MDMA. But just a just a fun little trivia point, considering we're talking about MDA and STP. Uh, MDA was one of the substances they found in the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots after he overdosed and died. So that was one of its kind of like claims to fame is that it killed, I think Scott Stapp is his name, Stone uh, Temple Pilots lead singer. Scott, I want to say Richardson. I actually knew somebody who was close friends with one of his with his wife um and that apparently wasn't it. scott whelan that was his scott name. whelan there we go there we go yeah, yeah apologies yeah, so. to stone temple pilots fans but i mean the important thing to take out of that story was the fact that mdm mda uh much more toxic than mdma uh the the, the simon reynolds notes the fact that basically taking three hits of mda puts you up around the the overdose to die level of uh, toxicity. So definitely something that people had to watch out for considering you hear stories of people taking four or five random pills at a time, you know? Yeah, yeah, you don't end up like Brian Jones just taking handfuls of whatever random people hand you, you know, that's how you end up at the bottom of the swimming pool. But, and there was a bunch of songs reflected in this, like Busy Bee had ecstasy as a science, chaotic chemistry, I mean, that was a group name right there, but they had tracks like LSD, Vitamin K, Strip Search, Illegal Subs, which also was a pun because the sub bass was so loud that it could be considered you know, dangerous or illegal. And the self-medication aspect was a big theme. And Reynolds also talks about how frequently illicit drug use is an attempt by people who are uh, damaged or chemically imbalanced in some way to try to medicate ourselves, which I totally attest to and frequently can 
be about as successful as regular doctors who are frequently just throwing pills at people and seeing what happens. So you had tracks like Doc Scott's surgery and NHS. You had Praga Khan injected with a poison, Prodigy with their track poison. Um, and, and Reynolds has another one of his judgy but not judgy quotes, grasping greedily for utopia right here, right now. Nice song reference there. They hurtled instead into a dystopian future. So, you know, no no free ride. And then he kind of goes back a little bit to some of the tracks we talked about during the hardcore chapter. And he says things like Asen's Trip to the Moon Part One or DMS's Love Overdose and Mind Wreck. Uh, these tracks were sort of precursors of this dark side thing. But I think, again, anytime you've got dance music that's being performed or, you know, for people to take drugs to, you're going to get this dark side. And you go back to House, and and that was an aspect of House songs really early on. So, you know, he is identifying a unique moment in time and a unique scene that expressed it. But again, a lot of these themes are expressed in other scenes at other times in our longer narrative. Yeah, this was just a, a kind of a, a grouped up bunching of of kind of strange minor key creepy music at, at a time where everybody was 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 coming down a little bit. So it stuck out in, in his mind and in many other people's minds, too. Again, like I don't want to deny that any of this stuff was was really going on in the dark side was a it was a kind of a, an overarching theme of the time for sure. So uh, you can't definitely can't deny that I find. But again, yeah, I, I agree with you. You, you. you poke through most of these musical genres and you can put together a nice little playlist to freak out drug overtures. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, you know, yeah, identify some more like foul plays, finest illusion, which refers to a really good batch of ecstasy. Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse have a tune drowning in her with her being X uh, and it samples. It has an interesting sample chain because it samples this quote of somebody going, how, uh, which they got from Four Heroes 1990, Mr. Kirk's Nightmare, which samples Thinks, Once You Understand from 1970, which is one of these sort of drug lecture, lecture songs. And Mr. Kirk's Nightmare is that his son is OD'd. And, and you know, Four Hero comes back to this. Reynolds says, if anyone can claim to have invented Dark Core, it's Four Hero. And they, they put out an EP called Where's the Boy? That's a, what he calls a sick joke concept EP about death by heat stroke, which was happening to a few people, but it was also really getting trumpeted in the press in a big way. So they do a whole concept EP about this with uh, tracks like, you know, cooking up your brain, time to get ill. Uh, burning, where's the boy? So, you know, tell this whole story about a kid who who does too much X, dances too hard, doesn't drink enough water, and dies of heat stroke. And that label they were on, Reinforced, is also the label with Doc Scott, with Goldie's Refugee Crew, Nebula 2, and, and that this label, Reinforced, more than anybody, um, pioneered the sound of darkness with their metallic beats, murky modulated bass, hideously warped vocals, and ectoplasmic smears of sample texture. Reynolds is a really good music critic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And uh, four four hero started reinforced records. And if you look at Mark Mack from four hero, he's basically like one at kids from Detroit and that he ended up being a key figure in the middle of everything and an important figure in jungle drum and bass because he applied like a literal community center ethos to reinforced records. Like he, that was a stated goal that when, when they set up a studio, they, they wanted it to be a place where, where all of his friends could kind of come and hang out and be together and play foosball as much as it was creating music and he'd bring in friends that weren't even musicians to work on tracks like Goldie when Goldie started with him uh, Goldie just came in and kind of gave general ideas for what he wanted to do and then Mark Mack would would produce it and so he would he would take non-musicians with uh, ideas for unique sounds and uh, unique compositions or, or I want to take elements of this genre and put it in with this and then they'd work together and they'd pump out tracks and they released so much music in a short amount of time, partially because of this ethos of wanting to release all their friends and supporting the scene and the sound, but also because in the early days, uh, their distribution company went out of business and stiffed them on 30,000 pounds worth of payments. So they needed to, to release a ton of music to make that money back. But, uh, you know, you can't understate the four, four heroes uh, influence because, again, they, they took it from all angles. He was they ran the label. They had they were on the pirate stations. They had sound systems. They built speakers. They taught people how to, how to build speakers. And there's a whole drum and bass royal lineage that goes through Four Hero because you have Fabio and Groove Rider playing reinforced records at Rage. Chemistry and Storm brought Goldie to Rage, and Goldie got into drum and bass from there, working with Four Hero. And he started the Metalheads dubplate sub label that was basically just underneath reinforced for the first couple of years before it blew up so that very deliberate decision on four heroes part to run everything like a community i think was was one of the reasons why dark side turned into jungle drum and bass and 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 how that scene went from something that you know at the time wasn't very popular amongst the masses but persevered and became cool and then turned into something big yeah, absolutely. And let's hear some Four Hero. This is Cooking Up Your Brain from the Where's the Boy EP. that was cooking up your brain from four hero on reinforced records and yeah bringing goldie in i mean just if that's all they had done that would have been a massive contribution to the history of dance music but the fact that they nurtured and mentored him and made all these records on their own with goldie uh refugee crew was his operating name later metalheads nebula 2 another group on that label and they had that studio in dallas hill and there's a great story reynolds tells about goldie and four hero Hero having a marathon three-day session that created 15 DAT tapes of samples and resamples that they had just jacked with and jacked with, and that you know mutant versions of Joey Beltram terror riffs, and that that this became the basis for dozens of tracks that they put out over the next couple of years. So it's pretty cool to think about one really overheated weekend where Goldie and and Four Hero just 
bust out so much magic that they're they're still sprinkling it around uh, for the next two years. Massively creative period. Yeah, and just another another example, uh, you know, for for listeners who are into music but may feel like they don't have a lot of like musical chops to actually do anything. Again, Goldie came into this thing more of an ideas man. He used to tell Four Hero, "I want you to to make the sound of a flower opening," and Four Hero would be like, "Okay, let's do it." And and because <laughs> of, he would push him outside the normal bounds of 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 how he would think as a producer. That's that's how those those strange things happen. So, and Goldie was one of those. Uh, uh, infamous, uh, you know, I don't want to say he's an infamous thief, but all of his, a lot of his designs and ideas and uh, earlier songs and stuff like that, o- overt sampling, uh, copyright infringement up the up the wazoo, but that's what made it special and great. And, uh, you know, again, you sometimes you, you got to get rid of this idea that you need to be perfect in your craft before you're allowed to release anything. You got to get rid of the idea that you're not allowed to touch anybody else's ideas or designs or anything else like that and just go for it because Goldie did. And now we got drum and bass. Absolutely. And Goldie, you know, the figure Goldie reminds me the most of in musical history is John Lennon, because that sort of idea of I want to hear the sound of a flower opening, which is a famous anecdote about Goldie. So many things like that, that John Lennon would walk into the studio and tell George Martin and Paul McCartney, you know, I want to sound like a Tibetan monk at the top of Mount Everest and and that kind of stuff. And and also the Beatles were notorious thieves, a, a little more artful. They would steal two bars of a Motown song, add it to two bars of a Phil Spector song. And, you know, voila, you've got a Beatles song. But Goldie's got that same sort of T.S. Eliot, you know, hacks imitate real artists steal ethos and and just you know a fountainhead of creativity and we'll be talking about goldie a lot more in the next few chapters but there's you know like a bunch of tracks like here comes the drums that we played earlier that's a morph of the mintasm riff uh, from joey beltram's mintasm and and Reynolds compares it to Terminator 2, which was one of the early CGI movies where you've got this metallic sort of plasma uh, assassin going around. And, and, and I think that was very timely with this is the, the CGI and the, and the audio technology were kind of moving in lockstep and you could morph sounds the way you could morph visuals and film at the same time. And Nebula 2, I think, also should get a mention as an important part of the Reinforced Crew tracks like Peacemaker, Explore, H-Core. Stuff like that just really um, captured a moment. You know, Reynolds says that, you know, here comes the drums by Nasty Habit is the sound of inner city turmoil. And I guess, you know, because they're sampling Public Enemy so blatantly, I can see that. But he says it's the dark track. And this is where he gets into a section where he admits, like, this was not a massively popular sound. It was kind of a connoisseur sound. It was mostly uh, DJs that were into it. He quotes some of the happy hardcore DJs who were around at the time saying, you know, all I heard from the punchers was moans when people were playing this crap. <laughs> you know, but he also says this was a conscious effort, like you mentioned earlier, on the part of these DJs and these producers to take the scene back underground a little bit. It had gotten so big, so over the top with the techno toy town scene that they kind of wanted to just, you know, weed out uh, some of the noobs and 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 lightweights, and and let's take this, let the scenes inner circle, you know, see who's really down with the program, and and let's go someplace dark and scary, and that's and that's where you get EPs like Four Heroes Journey from the Light EP, and and their Golden Age EP has this obsession with fortune telling and end times prophecies, and connects with with a whole bunch of other tracks coming out around the same time that 
you know, Reynolds identifies as this voodoo magic. And this is where he gets into this more stuff about, like, he has a great quote from William James, who's one of the fathers of, of psychology, who describes delusional insanity as a diabolical mysticism, religious mysticism turned upside down. It's got the same sense of ineffable importance in the smallest events, the same texts and words coming up with new meanings every time you look at it. You know, and Reynolds points out that drugs loosen the tyrannal, tyrannical grip of the ego, but they also let loose all the predatory phantoms and noxious paranoia of the id. So there's this strain of superstition. You've got tracks like Dark Angel by Doc Scott, Seance by the same guy, Ghosts of My Life by Nebula 2, uh, or but that's by Refugee Crew, sorry. Seance is by Nebula 2, Mega Drive's Demon, Boogie Times Tribe, The Dark Stranger. And this is where this Hollywood horror influence comes in. Lots of samples from horror movies and also samples, not just dialogue, which is frequently done to good effect, but also sampling the musical themes of horror movies. And Reynolds points out um, that horror movies were one of the few places where the ideas, some of the ideas of avant-garde classical music from the 20th century actually penetrated into the mainstream. All those dissonant chords and odd sounds and serialism and these different ideas that made 20th century, mid-20th century classical music so alienating and so unpleasant to hear are just the ticket when you're watching Michael Myers stalking a victim. You know, it's just the thing if Freddy Krueger is popping into somebody's nightmares, that's where those dissonant chords make sense. And that kind of stuff sneaks into dance music through this angle. So I, I love I love seeing a genre like that, like avant-garde classical, that seemingly just turned people off and had no impact, but it actually creeped in there. And they were onto something, and, and you can hear it uh, in this dark side stuff. Yeah, one of the things that I liked about uh, that Here Come the Drums track is it kind of shows you the dark side without the overt uh, dark side sampling or lyrics or whatever else like that. Because it's funny because we talk about this music being a bit of a reaction to that cheesy toy town sound. But then it kind of, even in this dark side element, kind of goes cheesy in its own way with all these horror samples, the screaming, wailing about dying of an overdose and kids being dead. It's just the other side of the coin. Of, of that first it's so dark it ends up kind of being cheesy again but but then when you you hear terminator when you hear uh here come the drums and some of these other other tracks you realize okay well this is this is more of a sound this is more of a mood and th that's something that goldie also talked about at the end when when he kind of went away from from dark side uh, as a generalized theme was he said that th it was originally the sound of urban decay and breakdown in society that they were trying to reflect and then people just took it and and turned it into a big ridiculous horror movie thing so you know everything ends up selling out at some point right yeah pretty much and and let's hear our last track and this is one from chicago from a couple years later from 1995 and this is a strain of house music of late period house music that reynolds identifies as having a lot of commonalities with dark side and this is green velvet's flash which tells the tale of somebody giving parents a tour of a dance club and all the bad, naughty things that the kids are doing inside. Green Velvet, Flash. Laughing, guys. Hehehe. <laughs> 
was ready, prepare to fly. And that was Green Velvet's Flash from 1995. And I found it really delightful that he threw that the house stuff in because it's different than the house we heard in the 80s, but it's still house and it's identifiable. You know, no, no, um, no break beats. You got drum machines. You got the the 303 bass lines in there, and and the cheesy vocals. Uh, cheesy is probably the wrong word, but the really amateur hour vocals recorded really flat, and they're doing it on purpose. It's become a house tradition by this point. So, some fun stuff from Green Velvet. Yeah, that one there is a, a big favorite of mine because it touches on a lot of a lot of different subtle notes as far as like the the paranoia that they're trying to play play up of somebody on the on the sound system talking about seeing somebody doing drugs and is oh my god are they talking about thee and then then there's the paranoia of oh my god there are parents here and then there's the paranoia of someone's taking pictures and then there's the flash and then there's the beat and so it's it's hitting all these different notes it's it's definitely a classic freak out paranoia inducing track and i think that's simon reynolds kind of giving that nod to the fact that yes i recognize this this is something that goes on through all, all of these these areas it was just uh that important impetus for 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 breakbeat hardcore turning into something else whereas in all the other genres it's just kind of a thing that happened and didn't really go go too far anywhere yeah, and he mentions things like he compares Four Heroes track "Make You See Spiders on the Wall" (parentheses Voodoo Beats). That that use of voodoo term imagery has been an ongoing theme. Like in previous episodes, we've called about talked about a guy called Gerald's Voodoo Ray. Uh, Future's your only friend with this idea of drugs as as the speaker and this this sort of demonic siren type you know leading people onto doom sleazy d's i've lost control from the very first house tracks um you know and and then green velvet returns very much to that with not just flash but also tracks like i want to leave my body conniption help me the stalker uh really fun stuff i love green velvet it's 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 wacky but i i totally dig it and, and we didn't even really touch on any of the gabber hardcore which goes into this which to me no one goes further into the whole dark side ethos of samples and drug references overdose overtures all that like the horrors one night in new york city is the kind of song that makes parents faint it's all about like a young girl going to a rave and getting picked up and doing drugs and having sex and it's just oh they could play that on the news and and raves would be shut down immediately yeah, it's interesting that he puts Gabba with with happy hardcore, and we're gonna have to wait a few weeks to get to that. So I'm curious to, to you know, this is all new to me, so I'm curious to learn more about that scene. But you know, he says by 19 by autumn of 1993 that the pioneers of dark side are moving on to new things, which is always the way. The innovators get there, discover it, and by the time the imitators come, they're ready to move on. That four hero quote began their journey back toward the light, and then you know you've got the quote from Goldie that you mentioned, and I like. I like how Goldie wrapped it up, you know, as an artist, I had to reflect the country and design, but now kids have turned it into a joke. They think dark is about devil worship, which is exactly what happened to heavy metal. You know, it's, it's sinister and scary the first time Ozzy sings about Black Sabbath, but by the time Dio has made a whole career of it, and then by the time black metal has made a whole genre of it, it does get a tad silly. Um, but again, I think the importance of this stuff is that both jungle and drum and bass can be traced directly to this dark side period. So many of the creators, Goldie famously, um, Fabio and Groove Rider are going to be key parts of that scene as well, that this is a key part of evolving original Afro-British music for the first time. This is the first native British style 
created by Afro-Britons to make a global impact. So, you know, jungle's massively important and dark side is a step towards that. Ergo, uh, dark side is very important. He calls it the roisterous roughneck menace of jungle. And he also says that dark side points to the, quote, densely textured ambient tinged sound of drum and bass. So I'm looking forward to learning the distinction because I've never been clear on the difference between jungle and drum and bass. Yeah, so, I've done some more research on that. I've got uh, I got some good answers. I talked to some people and I got the skinny on it completely. Awesome. Awesome. So that's something to look forward. But Reynolds also takes us back and connects this scene to one of his favorite formative scenes, which was the early 80s avant funk sound. Some people call it post-punk, new wave, new romantic, but things like PIL's Death, Death Disco, uh, Cabaret Voltaire, A Certain Ratio, 23 Skidoo. So those early 80s synth bands keep coming back and keep connecting. And I, I love this stuff. Like last week, Reynolds was connecting things to jazz fusion and jazz funk. This week, he's connecting things to avant-garde classical and Hollywood soundtracks and avant funk. So... Yeah, yeah. One of the great, the greatest things about him is that he makes these connections that I've never kind of seen or realized. When we were talking about how, uh, you know, ambient was the reaction to the hardcore rave, which then led into the middle ground of trance, kind of having a place to blossom. It really, uh, it really kind of blew my mind and and made me kind of understand where in the scene trance fit into. And and here again, kind of pointing out how that avant funk. Uh, kind of early 80s sound fit into it all. It's just another piece of the puzzle. And I love I love putting those down and fitting those in. Yeah, and, and that's what we're thankful to Simon Reynolds for. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the future sound of Detroit. This is the second wave of techno producers, people like Underground Resistance, Plus 8, and Carl Craig. So I'm looking forward to that because that's happening simultaneous with the stuff we've been talking about. And, and, and you know, some of those guys, Richie Houghton and others, have been mentioned in the last couple chapters. But I'm looking forward to a real focus on that second wave of Detroit. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We'll be back next week to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss the second wave of Detroit techno, artists like Underground Resistance, Richie Houghton's Plus 8 label, and Carl Craig. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.